Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 49, Uncomfortable Bedfellows, Theatre and Worship. Last time, I tried to bridge the yawning gap between the end of documented Roman theatre and the emergence of a distinctive medieval form of theatre. It's a long period where organised theatre on a large scale all but vanishes from the record, and we have to rely on secondary evidence to see the thread of theatre surviving. The preservation of Greek and Roman manuscripts in the East and in European monasteries doesn't give us a huge amount to go on, but there are a few surviving descriptions and illustrations of travelling performers and entertainers who were the exponents of theatrical arts for a long period of time. As I trailed pretty heavily last time, when a form of organised theatre does emerge, it comes from within the church. The service and ceremony from which public and organised drama emerged again was the Mass which at the time was conducted in Latin and followed a form that was in essence universal within each of the two orthodoxies, the Western based in Rome and the leadership of the Pope and the Eastern based in Constantinople and the leadership of the Patriarch. For those not familiar with the ceremony, each Mass involves set pieces of greeting, expressions of the glorification of God, a declaration of belief, readings from the Old Testament, the New Testament and the Gospel prayers for the community and, at the very centre of the rites, the transformation of bread and wine into the flesh and blood of Christ, as the commemoration of the sacrifice he made in the crucifixion that would lead to the salvation of all men. The varying parts of the Mass, the readings and the prayers, devoted to particular saints and seasons, cycled through the story of Christ's birth, mission, death and resurrection in the cycle of a year. Obviously, there is a lot, lot more to the theology behind the Mass, which I can't detail here. But the essential points to remember is that we have a priestly class who, in a common man's view, held the mysteries of the religion, spoke in a language they didn't understand, and held themselves separate from the congregation. Churches were designed around this divide, and at the time, the priests performed the rituals of the Mass with their back to the congregation. So we have something that is ritualistic, cyclical, familiar in a distant sort of way, and with an inherent element of performance, with explicit roles, costuming in the form of the priest's vestments, and a formal division of priest from congregation. In so many respects, the Mass is already quite a theatrical experience. The very highest days in the church calendar, Easter Sunday and the associated Good Friday, Epiphany and Christmas, were the days that first attracted extra-liturgical proceedings, and those proceedings were commemorative in their nature, and became part of the ritual of the Mass. The Christian rites and ceremonies had not sprung out of nothing. After the period of recognition by the Church by Constantine, when the Mass didn't have to be held quietly in secret, the forms of worship looked back to Roman and prior forms. Some Roman temples were converted to Christian churches, and God and Christ were honoured in the way that former gods and earthly kings were honoured. The Christian cult was very much one of the poor and disenfranchised to begin with, but once it had official recognition, a tension developed between the need to forsake wealth in the world to find the way to God and prepare for his second coming, which was expected imminently, and the desire to represent worship of the king or lord in a familiar way, with wealth, gifts and beautiful and valuable objects. With conflicting views such as these growing, there was a need for the church to promote its orthodoxy, to educate its followers and correct practice where it was not being followed correctly. 
Again, this became a hugely complex issue over the years, but for our purposes, the important thing to note is that the Church took to using allegory to explain and analyse its teachings for the edification of the common man. At this point, I should clarify the term liturgy and liturgical, which I realised that I've used last time quite freely without defining. In its original meaning, it referred only to the commemoration of the Last Supper and the celebration of the moment of transubstantiation, the transformation of the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ, which is at the very heart of the ceremony that is the Mass. That meaning gradually became extended to also include the formal prayers and order of the service of the Mass, and then of any defined event in church. Then, following the Reformation, was also extended to include all of the prayers used in any form of worship. So, for the Anglican Church, the liturgy includes the full contents of the Book of Common Prayer. But for the Catholic service, the liturgy means just the contents of the Mass, and is sometimes still used just to refer to that one particular part of the Mass. I shall use the term in its broad but not broadest sense, so referring to liturgy as the entire contents of the ceremony of the Mass. The Bible is, of course, a rich source of stories ripe for dramatisation. Origin stories, including miraculous births, the battle of good and evil, the underdog against tremendous odds, stories with high drama, even some comedy, fantastical tales and miraculous events, the devil personified, visiting angels and the foolishness of men in the face of God's will, all of which can be boiled down to clear messages about how to live a Christian life and, most importantly, achieve salvation and avoid damnation. Then there are the lives of the saints, which could be held up as models for the lay citizens and also provide dramatic stories of faith, cruelty, martyrdom and miraculous happenings. To again parallel with the Greek theatre, these stories were well known from childhood in their simplest forms. For most of the population, thanks to the very low level of literacy in the general population, oral storytelling remained a primary source of education and disseminating propaganda. Unlike the Greek poets, little deviation from the biblical story was allowed. When drama did get into the church service, it didn't challenge that biblical truth but confirmed it. Generally speaking, this was not drama used to question or subvert the religious status quo we will see that there are local variations in the stories performed and non-biblical stories get expanded and appropriated for local needs. The manner in which they were performed varies to accommodate these local conditions and the local culture. But such variations were not a significant change to the religious content or the message. In the early 9th century, Amalarius of Metz championed this approach. He was a Frankish prelate who served as Bishop of Thiers and then Lyon during the reign of Charlemagne and his son Louis the Pious. He was a key mover in liturgical reforms and wrote much of what was to become a specifically Frankish liturgy. He was probably not the first to think of it or utilise the idea of drama in the church service, but he set it out in an influential work, Liber Officialis, when he recognised that the Mass itself had a dramatic structure and a dual purpose. It was both a remembrance and confirmation of historical events, but also allegorical by nature, and had direct meaning that the participants applied to their lives. It is a very early written and explicit recognition that the church service has an element of mimetic theatre in it for the reenactment of the struggle and triumph of Christ over sin and death. In fact, that final leap to what was truly church-based theatre probably didn't happen until the 10th century at the very earliest. 
The form of the mass changed very little throughout all this time, and before any theatre became included, there were two fundamental aspects to the service, the spoken word and music. We have records of the spoken Latin texts of the Mass, but much less to go on where music is concerned. In the mime and pantomime of late Rome, music was intrinsic and, we think, played a very full part in all aspects of entertainment. But the cult and the secretive nature of early Christianity must have meant that the use of music and singing would have been curtailed, if not banned, in the early days. The evidence for musical notation from later centuries is very sparse, and there's much disagreement about how it was interpreted – But given the history of music in the Roman period, and in Jewish ceremonies and in the Bible itself, the Psalms were certainly written to be accompanied by music, there seems little doubt that once public worship was possible, the use of singing and music became rapidly included in services. In the late 5th century, just after the last Western Roman Empire had been deposed, Anictius Boethius was born in Rome to a senatorial family. He rose to power through the Senate and served the Ostrogothic king Theodoric the Great, who'd taken control of Rome in 493 CE. He led a colourful life, including times of imprisonment after falling out with Theodoric, and he spent his time there writing on philosophy and religion, and translating Plato and Aristotle. He's an interesting character as a bridge between antiquity and the medieval period, but I mention him here specifically because of his work De Institutoni Musica. Slightly later, Pope Gregory I, or maybe his successor, Gregory II, published Antiphonarium. Both works serve as a useful marker to show that by then there was a concern to make sure that the use of music within church was controlled. Both works stress that music and singing are only to be used to enable amplification and understanding of the words of the liturgy, and not for their own intrinsic beauty. There could be music and singing in church, but it was to be a simple melody and the vocal element was to remain the focus of attention. Whichever Pope Gregory it was set out these clear rules for the use of music within liturgy, while Boethius discussed other opportunities and uses more freely. But his ideas were not adopted until several centuries into the future. By the 10th century, standardised models, still based on Pope Gregory's original work, were in common use throughout the Western Church. The main intent for chanting rather than speaking words was still to aid audibility, and this single or few-note plain chant recited by the priests was sometimes expanded to include responses from the congregation, or verses, where they were permitted to join the chant. The psalms were set to music, and some lent themselves to a question-and-answer call-and-response style. Depending on the content of the psalm, this could be a single priest or a monk who became known as the cantor, eliciting responses from the congregation in the form of a repetitive chorus or part of a verse. Sometimes the call and response roles could be allocated to specific groups of celebrants and within the congregation. During this period, not only do the congregation take on more of a role within the service, but the music used becomes more complex and the balance between the relative importance of the words and the music starts to shift, something that becomes noticeable at some point in the 10th century. Slowly, very slowly, through the 9th and then the 10th centuries, there is a move away from pure plain chant performed by the clergy to more communal singing that includes the use of counterpoint and truly polyphonic community singing. Music remains significant from this point on, and we will come back to singing in the Mass. But first I want to circle back and look at the visual aspect of the church experience as this provides the backdrop for the drama that was to develop. 
As with oral stimulation, the thinking of how art as visual stimulation was used in the maths through the period is difficult to define. We have evidence of architecture, of course, but less opportunity to review decorative art from the period from a church setting. We might assume that it was initially practical and functional, but varied greatly between the Byzantine, Roman and Celtic church traditions. For our purpose, perhaps it's enough to say that art and architecture were not produced for their own sake, but for very specific church purposes and locations. Broadly, that purpose was in the service of the worship of God, and to provide a focal point for meditation and prayer. The limits placed on the use of figurative art were to ensure that its presence was only there to symbolise or emphasise the relationship to the character depicted for God and a divine state. Once again, to put ourselves into that medieval mindset can be difficult, given the long subsequent history of the appreciation, one might say worship, of art for its own sake. The architecture of the Christian church that developed from the early Christian period was based on the need to have a space large enough to gather all of the congregation at one time, but with a separated space for those who were celebrating the rites. Hence the nave of the church for the congregation and the chancel for the priests was developed as a standard form. This was the form of the basilica, which further developed in size and shape as building techniques improved and particularly when it came to supporting larger and larger domes in the roof space of the buildings. Look at the ground plan of any church or basilica and immediately the central space stands out as a potential acting area. But the broad brush of these artistic and cultural developments that would be the background to liturgical drama were not a smooth progression over the centuries of the medieval period. There were some local differences and some regional differences, and the differences between the Western and the Eastern orthodoxies, and within those, there were leaps forward and reversals, as internal disputes and rival claims of one form of liturgical code or another vied for ascendancy, and all in the name of finding a true belief that could lead to eternal life with God. These disputes and discussions were also influenced by changing political situations and, at various and different times, invaders from Scandinavia, the Asian steppes and from the East influenced life in Europe through warfare, appropriation, settlement and absorption of some elements of foreign cultures. Throughout the period, the church's attitude towards music, art and architecture was cautious, but pragmatic, and the attitude to dramatic art was similarly ambiguous and even slower to develop. It was not until the 11th and 12th centuries that the church was ready to use dramatic arts as a form of education within the mass. And there are two very important things we always have to bear in mind. The majority of the population were illiterate in their own tongue and all the church activities were conducted in Latin. These factors are both advantages and constraints. Illiteracy meant that learning was very limited and there was no progression towards a generally educated population. Presentation, mimicry and performance therefore became accepted as a way to recount to the citizens biblical stories and exemplary tales from the lives of the saints of the church. The restriction of the use of Latin for church liturgy and performance meant that the development of any sort of nationalist theatre became very delayed and across Europe, although liturgical drama was developed semi-independently in various locations, it took a very similar form across the continent. The art and architecture allowed for a representation of God and his domains as similar to those of an emperor, and for those to be opposed by the devil and his realm of fire, brimstone and the poor suffering souls who had failed to make it to heaven. There were very forthright and dramatic representations of these two opposing states. 
Heaven could be represented as a pastoral idyll or a palace of immense wealth and beauty, and hell could be shown to represent the worst of the physical world, full of cesspits, torture, barren lands and volcanic areas where there was no hope of survival. The use of such strident images grew and eventually led to a reaction in 730 CE, when Byzantine Empire Leo III forbade the use of images in the Christian church. A 30-year period of enthusiastic iconoclasm resulted in systematic destruction of much church imagery. Following this, there were periods of reprieve and then renewed enthusiasm for iconoclasm as emperors came and went. And it was not until the use of art in church was re-established and accepted that the use of drama could be considered. It is the Easter morning service that celebrated the resurrection that seems to have been the first service to include some form of drama. And this takes us back to the growing use of music and singing with congregational participation that was developing in the 10th century. In the early Christian rites, there were sung portions called tropus in Latin, meaning additional melody. This was anglicised to tropes. Although they existed from early times, they didn't become formalised until the medieval church developed, and they do so as part of the ceremonies around the Easter story, the Passion and the Resurrection of Christ. The most interesting trope from a dramatic point of view concerns the events depicted in the Easter Day service, where the three Marys approach the tomb of Jesus after the resurrection. This is still simply sung, call and response, but the priest explicitly takes on the role of the angel at the tomb and sings, Who do you seek? The response by Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James the disciple, is sung by three choristers. It may not have been recognised as such, but the participants were playing the parts of characters. The short dialogue continues until the resurrection is confirmed and the priest leads the congregation in a joyous song. It is brief and absolutely wedded to the service for Easter Day, but it is arguably the start of church drama. At about 970 CE, Bishop Ethelwald of Winchester issues guidance on how the Easter trope was to be performed. This was an addition to a document laying out the rules to be used in his diocese that had been in existence for a couple of hundred years already and would seem to be the earliest official recognition of the use of theatre or at least performed drama in the church setting. The document is significant because it goes into detail about what costumes are to be permitted and where the performers are to stand in relation to each other. In other words, rudimentary stage directions. It's common to find that documents like this are written because they're of a perceived need to stop people behaving in a particular way. It's possible that Ethelwald and his advisers had a problem with the unregulated drama being added to the church service that opened the door to ideas that opposed orthodoxy and perhaps could even lead to heresy. It's a minor point about the control that the church exerted on the everyday way of life in Europe at the time, but it does suggest that the use of unregulated drama may have been becoming an issue for the authorities in Winchester, and they felt it needed dealing with. It was getting towards the end of the Anglo-Saxon line of kings, and they were desperately trying to hold on to power in the face of Danish raids that were becoming more and more regular and ferocious, and which divided the country and played a large part in the troubles of the kingdom. Monasteries and the wealth of churches were easy picking for the raiders. These were dark times where being in a religious order was no guarantee of safety, given the physical threat from warriors who came from the sea and the chance of the next round of plague coming to your town or monastic community. The threat of eternal damnation was only slightly less tangible for most, so the church service and the cycle of celebration, redemption and the promise of eternal life that it signified must have been a central, if small, joy in the life of the peasantry. 
To be able to see events acted out, and for some to be able to participate, must have been a very special event. The individual gatherings were undoubtedly smaller than the gathered citizens in ancient Athens or Rome, but again I'm reminded of the close similarities when drama and theatre are allowed to meet religion. And next time I'll be looking in more detail at those documents that specified how the trope at Easter should be enacted. From the 9th century, there are records showing that short pieces of mime were added to the Latin service, where there was silence or music. This is from St Gaul, in the German part of Switzerland, where a local musical monk is credited with the innovation. He, in turn, suggests that the idea for dramatising sections of the Mass came from visiting Norman monks. The performed exchanges of dialogue, the tropes that I've mentioned before, also get a mention at about the same time. However, we should not overestimate the impact of these developments. In the heart of the church organisation, in the larger cities where orthodoxy could be better monitored, such additions to the Mass were no doubt curtailed, and it was only the remoteness of parishes and monasteries that meant such additions survived. Monks travelled between religious houses across the European continent, so this is likely one of the ways that dramatic interludes became introduced from one monastic church to another. Although there may have been tensions between what progressive priests and monks wished to do and what the leaders of the church would officially permit, the dramatic interlude in the Mass grew in popularity and became part of the church toolbox for educating the people. Music, illustrations, sculpture, bas-relief and other non-literary depictions had long been used to illustrate the life of Jesus, biblical stories and the lives of the saints from the earliest days of the church and drama slowly became another part of that landscape. The Easter trope must have been considered a success, as not long after tropes for performance as part of the Christmas Day celebrations began to appear. It's not clear if that success was recognised because of the educational or doctrinal impact of the trope, or just because it added to the joyous atmosphere on those two very special days in the Christian calendar. The latter, I suspect, was the case. Somewhere between the regiment and spirituality of the service and the limited participation of the congregation or permitted group of singers, came a space for imagination and participation that can lift the spirits and increase the feeling of inclusion in a community. The church drama that developed so far, that is, through the 8th, 9th and 10th centuries, is slight, but it is a start and has a distinct nature. It is mystical as part of the rites and ceremonies and lyrical as a sung or chanted form. One could, at a stretch, draw a comparison with opera. What it certainly was not was realistic or didactic. It was not an entertainment. One might consider it a teaching aid, but this denies its essentially spiritual and mystical nature. It was an integral part of the liturgy and the Christian calendar, given its associations with specific high and holy days. What is clear is that by the late 10th century, where we have examples of the tropes from England, France and Switzerland, church drama was still only an elaboration to the church service, in the same way art, music and architecture were but it was one of the ways in which special events in the calendar were marked. Perhaps it was not inevitable that once that particular door had been opened it would be expanded into other parts of the liturgy and beyond, but that is the way things developed. That the Easter and Christmas celebrations in particular attracted these new ornamentations to the Mass is, I think, not surprising. Both were long-celebrated festivals going back a long way into pagan rites, that contain a huge dash of optimism, with both marking significant changes in the cycle of the year. The Christian era gave them added, or perhaps I should say, 
different spiritual significance. The days starting to lengthen after Christmas were perhaps less noticeable than the significance of Easter tied as it is to the spring equinox, and the promise of bounty just around the corner. Both were celebratory and joyful times in the annual cycle, and the urge to mark them with special days was strong. The tropes that became repeated every year and formalised as part of the service retold strong narratives that we can assume engendered a strong emotional response amongst those watching. This is something a lot like theatre. But these records are rather shadowy at best, and have an opacity that denies us a clear picture of how far the tropes were truly performative by their nature. When we break theatrical performance down to its basic component parts, we can see that what is required is a stage or an acting area, an imitative narrative with a storyline or story arc, some identification of persons, of character types and place, and a distinction between actor and audience. If we apply that to the medieval period, then we can say that we have a good idea of the architecture of the church and so how it might have functioned as a theatrical space but we're less sure about the details of the decoration of the setting and how that was viewed by the people of the time. We can understand the setting of the Mass, but we can't think of it as just like the Mass of today, whatever religious denomination we might be considering. We have examples of the words used and, to a lesser extent, of how they were sung or chanted, and how far the performance was inclusive for all of those present. Despite those issues, and only in these basic terms, this early liturgical drama does, I think, qualify as theatre. But there is a but, and it's quite a big but. The audience response could be emotional, intellectual, or both, as we would expect in the theatre. But it was also a religious spiritual response, and, one might assume, primarily so. This is where the audience becomes a congregation, the actor becomes a priest and the whole experience becomes part of a religious service rather than being something of its own. I'm not trying to suggest that the common medieval man saw the tropes as distinctly theatrical within the Mass. In fact, I think they would have certainly regarded the tropes as part of the highly structured religious observance. Perhaps when they saw one for the first time, they appreciated the clarity of the storytelling, the acting of a story rather than just the recitation and perhaps some felt inspired to believe again in the power of the theatrical event. And I think it's interesting to speculate that if we knew more about the detail of the setting of ancient Greek drama, we would find very similar uncertain distinctions between the religious and the theatrical. As it is, we only have the ancient Greek plays and next to nothing about the religious ceremony and paraphernalia that they were set within. So it's easier from a greater historical distance to separate the two and view the plays as artistic, poetic works rather than religious, and thereby avoid these concerns. If we step back from the detail for a moment and look at the broad picture of medieval theatre, it's possible to see an arc that can be traced through three main themes. Firstly, and throughout the period, there is an underlying and very often prominent concern for religious aspiration and underlying that, a strong push for adherence to a standard church teaching. During this period, doctrinal orthodoxy was very important to the church as they fought off heresies promulgated by groups of disparate believers. What we've seen so far is the beginnings of how church came to understand that theatre could be used in its own service and was not always something to be denied and shunned. As the period progresses, we will see a growing perception that plays and theatre were also about leisure and recreation. 
That in turn leads to a realisation that whatever the purpose of theatre, religious propaganda, education or social entertainment, there is a financial cost attached, and the more elaborate theatre becomes, the more costly it also becomes. There develops a need to find ways to finance theatre and find some form of recompense for those involved in the creation and preparation of the theatrical event. These developments are seen across medieval Europe in broadly similar ways, but of course with local variations. Those developments came out of the tropes, if we allow that they are the earliest form of medieval theatre. The form is distinctive to the medieval period and I think does hold a place that we at least have to recognise as part of the development of post-Roman theatre. We will get to theatre for leisure purposes, even theatre for commercial purposes, but both retain many religious aspects, not least in their subject matter, but their intent becomes different, or at least a little broader than the church-based performances ever were. Next time, we are still firmly in the world of liturgical drama, where we will see the final development of the trope and check in on some of the other traditions and celebrations that form the backdrop to the emerging theatrical activity. It's a topsy-turvy world of boy bishops, asses and fools. In the meantime, don't forget to check out the new website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com where you can access all the past episodes and see some background information about the podcast. For the Facebook community, there's a page and a group for the podcast and I'm on Twitter too. A review on Apple Podcasts never goes amiss and the virtual coffees at ko-fi.com are much appreciated. If you would like more content, please go to patreon.com slash thoetp and join us there for a small monthly fee. A new addition there is the third and final part of my review of Roman philosophical movements. My thanks to all of you who have shown support in whichever way. It's great to know that you're out there and enjoying the podcast. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can always contact me by email on thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.